Well, why don't we go ahead and study our Bibles? I believe that's what we came here to do. And brother, is it Denny? Correct. It was nice to meet you this week. If you haven't met Denny yet, please meet him at the end of the service. A godly man who studies the Bible. And that's what we need. And I'm thankful that you came to join us today. And it's a blessing to be able to worship together. So why don't we stand for prayer, if you're able. If you realize after sitting a while, it's easy to fall asleep. And it's biblical to stand while we pray. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we stand here this morning seeking your blessing. Not standing because we think we have it, but Lord, kneeling in heart, realizing we need your spirit. Father, I pray that you would please send your same spirit that inspired the truths of Scripture to inspire our hearts with understanding and to enlighten our minds. Father, you have a message for us today that could easily be messed up by the messenger, and we pray that you would keep that from happening. We pray that your will would be accomplished, that your word would not return unto you void as promised. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our series on what is a Christian. If you remember, we looked at the first part last week. Looking in Mark chapter 3, as the scripture reading was read, Mark chapter 3, we saw Jesus called his disciples for two very specific purposes. We also recognize the fact that Christianity today has changed drastically from what God ever intended it to be in the beginning. You remember looking at that? We saw Christians who believe a whole gamut of things that Scripture never taught. We see that it's without doubt that Christianity has changed face over the last 2,000 years. So we're trying to get back to the understanding of what was Jesus' intent in calling a Christian or calling a disciple. Now we saw last week that Jesus calls us and the first thing that he calls us to do is to what? Anyone remember? We used a few different phrases for it. It's to spend time with Him, or to be with Him. Do you remember reading that? And we're going to read Mark chapter 3, verse 14, to remind you of that this morning, for those of you who weren't here, and then move on into the second part of our series this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, it says, And He appointed twelve, and these are the twelve disciples, which we realize is the same as Christians today, that they might be what? With Him. And does it stop there? No. And that he might send them out to what? Preach. Now, last week we looked at a little slide and we made a math equation out of this. And we realized that time with God or being with God plus witnessing for God is what Jesus says equals a disciple or a Christian. Is that correct? Can we see that from the text? Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you enjoyed math in school? Did anyone enjoy math? I, I had different challenges with math, and some of it was good and some not so good. But there's something that I did learn. If you take one of these two things away, do you still come up with the same result? Mathematically speaking. If 1 plus 1 equals 2, if I take away 1, what do I have? 1, right? It's a different result. Now, this is very simple logic. But let me ask you a question. If I call myself a Christian, and I'm not spending time with God, am I meeting what Jesus was really calling me to become? No, he wants us to be with him and to experience the blessing of fellowship in his presence, which we need. And we looked at that last week, and we see how spending time with God encourages our faith, causes us to be born again, and changes us into God's image, if you remember that. 
Now let me ask you another question. If I take away witnessing for God, am I still, in the biblical sense, considered a Christian? According to Jesus, am I meeting Jesus' original intent for calling the 12 disciples? Now, let me just get something really clear here from the beginning. How many of you realize there's areas of growth in your own life that are necessary in your Christian walk? Do you realize that? I think all of us realize that. And so as we analyze scripture and we look at Christ's ideals for our lives, we shouldn't take it as Jesus is you know, trying to give us a spanking or step on our toes and just irritate us. But we realize that Jesus is trying to refine us because Jesus' perfect plan is what brings us happiness. Do you agree with that? How many of you have lived long enough to realize that your own plan doesn't make you happy, but God's does? So if Jesus is calling Christians to spend time with him and to witness for him, how many of you think it's important that in our own Christian experience that God helps us by his grace to experience those two things? Now, let me ask you a question. In studying scripture, do you think it's a good idea to build a whole theology or framework of understanding from one text? Now, we've spent a lot of time looking at Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, and we can see that from the words of Jesus, to the best of our understanding, that being with God and then going for God or witnessing for God are the two elements that comprise the Christian life. But do you think it might be good to look at a couple other passages to see if we're on the right path or if we have something incorrect. Do you think that's a good idea? I want to look at a couple things very quickly because I don't ever want to build an understanding of something that isn't biblical into my Christian life. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're not going to reread through this passage. Two weeks ago, we shared this um, as the first message here in this church. Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah chapter 6 is a powerful passage for many reasons, and we won't take time to read through it for sake of time. But I would encourage you to take some time to look at it this afternoon or whenever you have a moment. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see it's God's call to the prophet Isaiah. And God is calling Isaiah for the first time into the prophetic ministry or into the ministry of being a prophet. Now, how many of you think you might be a little bit intimidated if God was calling you to be a prophet? Is that a lot of responsibility? Notice the sequence of events that we find in Isaiah chapter 6. We're not going to read through it all. But in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, the first few verses, we see that Isaiah was given a vision. And what was he given a vision of? The temple. And this temple, where was it? It's the temple in heaven. The very throne room of God, right? That's what the center of the temple is all about. And as Isaiah sees the throne of God in the temple of heaven, he hears the angels who are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah says this scene is so incredible that the very doors of the temple are shaken. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that would equal an experience with God? Do you think having a clear vision, literally, of who God is in his holy place would be similar to what Jesus is talking about spending time with God. This encounter moment. Now as Isaiah spends this time with the Lord, he recognizes his own sinfulness. And we see he cries out, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen who? The King, the Lord of hosts. 
And at that time, an angel comes over with tongs from off the altar and brings a coal, symbolically cleansing the sin of Isaiah. And Isaiah experiences the freedom and regenerating power of God's grace. Now, right after that happens, notice what verse 8 says. This is a conversation that Isaiah hears. He says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah says what? Here am I, send me. Now, do we find this to be a similar pattern to what we see Jesus talking about in Mark chapter 3? He has a close encounter with God where he experiences the grace of God and no one twists Isaiah's arm and says, Isaiah, you'd better witness now. But it's a natural result flowing out of a heart that's converted that Isaiah says, here am I, send me. That's example number one. I want to encourage you to flip over to Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. And in Romans chapter 1, we're going to see something else very similar. Now, who wrote the book of Romans? Paul. And Paul had another name before, and his name was Saul. You remember that. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul has an encounter with the Lord where he's on the road to Damascus going to persecute the Christians. And while on the way, a bright light shines about him and a voice from heaven comes, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And during that exchange between Paul and Jesus, Paul recognizes that he's been resisting Christ. And now he comes to a point of surrendering to Christ. And you can read through the story there. But as a result of that conversion experience, Paul becomes one of the greatest apostles in the New Testament, writing most of the New Testament. And here is one of the passages that gives us a similar understanding of what Jesus was talking about in Mark chapter 3. Romans chapter 14, sorry, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians both to the wise and to the unwise. So as, so as as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now let's take a little bit of time to understand this passage. Paul starts out by saying that he's a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. In other words, he's indebted to everyone. Now what type of debtor is Paul? Is Paul saying that he's gone out and borrowed money from every individual that he's ever encountered and now he's in debt to everyone? Is that what Paul is describing here? Now if you know about the lifestyle of Paul, there was many times he wouldn't even take the support of a church when he was ministering in an area. What did he do during the night? Oftentimes labored in making tents and selling those in order to fund his own ministry that he would do during the day. So Paul is not here saying, I'm indebted financially to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. So in which way is he indebted? Paul says this, I'm indebted in such a way that I'm ready to preach the gospel to you. Well, why is he ready to preach the gospel? Notice verse 16. It starts with the word for, or for this reason. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of who? God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Here's the quick understanding of what Paul is saying. Paul says, as I look at my life, 
And I realize the power of the gospel has come in and fully transformed his life, and I don't think any of us could deny that transformation in Paul's life. Paul says, as I see the transforming grace of God in my own life, I can't help but see that I'm in debt. My debt is to share the very thing that God has done for me in bringing salvation to my own life. Now I have to now preach to those who are in Rome also. Does that make sense? You can see the burden of Paul's life. It's not that he feels obligated in and of itself, but he knows the obligation comes from the very fact that he himself received the grace of God. Now, notice this quote from Desire of Ages, page 141. It says, No sooner is one converted than there is born within him a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving and sanctifying truth, what's this word? Cannot. What does that mean? It's an impossibility. The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. My friends, this is exactly what we have seen so far. Jesus says that when you're a Christian, you spend time with him. And what happens when you spend time with Jesus that we saw last week? Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. As we encounter Jesus through the sacred pages of scripture, we're converted. And those who are converted, no sooner are they converted than to, they want to make known to others the precious friend they've found in Jesus. Was that true in your experience? You can look back on your first time with the Lord, and even as you're growing in the Lord today, the more you get to know Him, the more you want to share Him with others. And it's impossible to keep it quiet. Now, one more example. There's, there's a good fact of finding at least three scriptures to understand something. And here's our third one, John chapter 4. And John chapter 4 is not an unfamiliar passage for many. John chapter 4 is where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And notice the transaction that takes place when Jesus encounters this woman. Now you're familiar with how it goes. Jesus was sitting by the well. His disciples had gone off. And Jesus asked the woman for something. And what was that? A drink of water. May I have something to drink? And what is the woman's response? Well, how can you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? And then Jesus gets into this. If you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me for a drink. Well, where's your bucket? I don't need a bucket. I have living water. And Jesus goes through all of this thing. And then Jesus says, hey, can you go call your husband to come to me? And she says, well, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, well, that's correct. The man you're living with isn't your husband. And the five others before, you know, you've had some, some experience there. And what's the result of that? Notice this. Now, now, some of us would just be totally put off by that. But aren't you thankful that Jesus knows how to reach each person where they are? Jesus noticed the reaction of this woman. Verse 28. It says, The woman left her water pot, the only reason she had come there, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. How many of you would be that excited with Jesus revealing your sin? Look, look, I mean, guys, look at everything. Jesus knows all about it. But I wonder if it's because she realized that Jesus knew about it and still cared for her that it was appealing. But she says, come, could this be the who? The Christ. Then they went out of the city 
and came to meet him. Now this is powerful. Once again, this close connection with Jesus, no one told the woman, you don't see Jesus saying, hey, I want you to go back into the city, tell everyone everything I've done for you, and at, when you're done with that, we're going to hold a special series of meetings, and then you're going to see what the Lord's going to do. No, it's the natural inborn converted heart that with every Christian comes the desire to share your faith with others. Notice this quote. We'll only read a part of it. This comes from Desire of Ages on this chapter. It says, This woman represents the working of a practical faith in Christ. Every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God as a what? As a missionary. Is it possible to be a disciple of God and not be a missionary? Jesus tells us very clearly that in order to be his disciples, or the very fact that we are his disciples, is we can know that when we're spending time with him and when we're going for him to share his grace and love with those around us. Now, have you ever heard someone say, I don't know about witnessing, it isn't necessarily my spiritual gift? You ever felt that way yourself? I mean, how many of you, to be 100% honest, feel like, well, I'm fully equipped to be the best evangelist or witness that the Lord has ever seen, and I'm ready to go preach the gospel to those who are in Rome, like Paul said? I mean, I don't necessarily feel that way. But have you ever analyzed the spiritual gifts chapter in Scripture? Gone through Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and it's interesting to notice what is there, and it's also interesting to notice what's not there. In other words, in the spiritual gifts chapter, and I would encourage you to go back and take time to look through it. I looked through it yesterday to make sure I'm not preaching heresy. When you look through the spiritual gifts chapter, you won't ever find, well, the spiritual gift of being a Christian witness is given to a select group of people. Witnessing is not a spiritual gift. Now, you might say, wow, the whole church is destitute of the ability to witness? Not necessarily. It actually comes standard in being a Christian. And let me illustrate it to you this way. How many of you have ever purchased a car before? I'm assuming many of us, because I've seen some in the parking lot. Now, can you imagine, this is a picture of a car that I will never afford, but can you imagine going to the dealer, going through the transaction after you find the car, you make sure it's the one you want, and you're done outside, and you go back inside, and you're finishing all the paperwork, and they hand you the keys, and you say, okay, thank you, and you get in the car and you push your fancy button start or you turn the key or whatever you do, and you go to reach for the steering wheel and your hands hit each other and you realize there's no steering wheel in the vehicle. Now, you're puzzled when you test drove it, there was, but now, you know, now that you're getting ready to purchase it, it's not. So you go back inside to the salesman and you say, hey, you know, I, I really appreciate the car. It's great. The only problem is there's no steering wheel. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand. You didn't purchase that option. There was no steering wheel that you purchased. You see, that's, that's not standard equipment. That's actually an extra package. Now, how many of you would like to purchase vehicles like that? You realize that when you purchase a car, you have never walked away from that transaction without a steering wheel. Because the reality is, is that it's just standard equipment for the vehicle. You can't operate the vehicle without it. It's a useless piece without it. In the same way, Christian witnessing is to the Christian. When God looks to us and says, hey, I want you to be my witnesses, and you say, oh, sorry, Lord, it's actually not my spiritual gift. You haven't seen how bad I've messed up. The Lord says, don't, don't, don't worry. The very fact that you've been born again and have a renewing experience with me on a daily basis, that's your same assurance that you can have that I will cause you to be a witness for me. 
Jesus doesn't leave us looking on the sidelines, just watching everyone else doing the work. But Jesus allows us to participate and to see the miracles of God happen before our very own eyes as we work with him. Now, just to, we're going to skip this next little spot for the sake of time. But if witnessing is so important, I want to ask you, why is it that we see so little witnessing happen among Christians today? For example, you realize that I like numbers and statistics probably just from the last sermon when we had all of the different things that we see Christians doing today. Well, I was looking for what are the numbers of percentage of Christians who believe that evangelism is essential for the Christian life? Now, did you know something really shocking to me was that 100% of evangelical Christians believe that evangelism is important in their life. In other words, that they have a responsibility to share Christ with others. 100%. Now, for general Protestants at large, it came down around 70%. But something interesting, have you ever had good intentions and not followed through? Or have you ever known something to be right but not done it? I mean, we're human. We experience the weakness of human flesh without the aid of God. What's interesting to find is that at best, 50% of Christians, 100% thought it was a good idea and knew it was essential, 50 or 51% thought in the last year there was ever a time where they actually shared their faith with someone. In one year, once potentially, I mean, that's a little bit of a difference. So my question then still remains, why is there so little witnessing? And this question is not to point the fingers that way, it's to point the fingers this way. You realize pastors have to witness too. Like preaching on Sabbath isn't just witnessing, that's community and worship and we're all doing it together. But how do we engage in witnessing? Why is it that it lacks so much in my life or your lives sometimes? Well, would you mind if we go through quick reasons as to why I believe evangelism is lacking and God's solution to those problems. Is that okay? Well, I'm glad some of you think it's okay. Um, the rest of you can break early for potluck. Number one. Reason number one. Reason number one really comes without any more biblical explanation than what we've already looked at. And let's just retrace this. Isaiah has an experience with God and when he hears the call of God, he says, here am I. Paul has a converting experience with God on the road to Damascus. And as a result of that conversion, he feels in debt and desirous to preach to those around him. The woman at the well experienced Jesus. And through that experience with Jesus, she ran into the town, unsolicited by Jesus, willing to share with others the, the blessing of finding the Messiah. You think of the man who is born um, deaf and mute. And when Jesus heals him in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, Hey, I don't even want you to tell anyone. Well, how successful was that? It says the man just kept going around, multiplying, telling everyone, You will not believe the good things the Lord has done for me. So, the reality is, is if we see little witnessing in our life, could it be that our connection with the Lord is a little weak? Is there a reason why Jesus said in Mark chapter 3 verse 14 that he called 12 to be with him and then to send them to preach? Jesus didn't say he called 12 to preach and then to be with him. In other words, we have to have those personal encounters with God on a consistent daily basis or else we won't find any motivation or any desire to go out and share our faith. 
So why is it that there's so little witnessing? Well, could it be that we have few and far between encounters with the Lord? How many of you are thankful that the Lord has kind of given us that as a litmus test? I analyze my life and I think, man, when's the last time I really went out of my way to share the gospel with someone? And that helps me check to see, well, maybe, how's my connection with the Lord? Lord, please draw me closer to you. Give me that same burning desire that Paul and the woman at the well did. Give me that burning desire to share the truth with those who are lost. Well, this is point number one. Point number two, how many of you are held because of fear from doing the right thing? Now, I'm going to share with you my two biggest fears. And I'm not talking just past tense. I think these are all continuous fears. But by the grace of God, we can find His help in this. Fear number one is the fear of rejection. How many of you would love to do evangelism if you knew the people you were getting ready to share it with wanted to hear it? In other words, if the Lord said, I want you to walk over to such and such a neighbor's house, and when you get to the house, you're going to offer them X, Y, or Z, some literature to pray with them, offer them to come to church, offer them Bible studies, and when you do that, they're going to just start crying and saying, I've been praying and pleading with God for this. They're going to end up joining the church, being baptized. They're going to become such a blessing to your family. If you knew that whole story, how many of you would be afraid to go to that door? But the reality is, is we don't, right? All we see are faces of people not smiling. And we don't know whether that means they're interested or not interested. That's why Jesus tells, or, or God tells Jeremiah, fear not their faces when he sends them to Israel, because you don't know. But here's the beautiful thing, and we'll come back to lack of knowledge at the second point. Here's the beautiful thing. That scenario that I described to you at a door of someone just weeping, waiting for you coming, number one, that's happened multiple times to hundreds of people around the world. It's happened in my own life. I'm sure these canvassers can tell you how it's happened in their life. Our brother who canvasses frequently can tell you how that happens in his. And some of you might have had that encounter already. But notice this quotation. This is what gives me encouragement. And this comes from Acts of the Apostles, page 109. It says, all over the world... Now, now where is all over the world? Everywhere, right? Including Vassar, Frankenmuth, Carrot, wherever you live. All over the world, men and women are looking wistfully to heaven. Prayers and tears and inquiries go up for souls longing for life, for grace, and for the Holy Spirit. Many are on the verge of the kingdom, waiting only to be gathered in. I mean, what does Jesus tell us? The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. And if you have a harvest that ready, that means you just had to gather it in. Jesus is telling us, friends, you might be intimidated about your next door neighbor, that person you see at the gas station every day, the person you work with, your own family members. What do I say? What do I do? What if they reject me? But what if they don't? My friends, would it be worth being rejected once if the second person actually accepted would it be worth being rejected ten times if one person would be in the kingdom and say, brother or sister, I am so glad you shared your faith because if you wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been here today. What about a hundred rejections? Where's our limit? Jesus says that he would have died for one soul. And can we think about our friends and our family members, our neighbors, those people we see. What if they're one of these people being described? You may not know that. You may have never had a spiritual conversation. You know, I shared a glow track with someone at the hotel that we're staying in. And he's a young man, good-looking young man. 
And not necessarily, we've been there three times, seen this guy. I mean, it's like it's our second home now. And after seeing him, and his name is Devin, he said, well, it's my birthday today, and da 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 And I thought, oh, great, happy birthday, Devin. He said, I'm getting old, I'm 24. And for a moment, it made me feel a little bit older. And Devin was going on and on, sharing these things. I said, hey, Devin, I have a gift for you. It just happened to be a glow track that said, a gift for you on it. And inside, I had some Bible study offer and different glow tracks in there. And I said, hey, I just want to leave with these with you. Happy birthday. He said, hey, thanks so much. So I went out to the car to get the luggage. And I came back in and I said, hey, Devin, I have one more question. And before he even answered my question, he said, now, what church do you go to? I said, oh, I go to the Bay City Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was the closest one. I could have told him about Vassar, too. He would have loved it. But I said, we go to the Bay City Seventh-day Adventist Church. Oh, really? He said, I go to the Bay Valley Christian Church. I said, oh, really? Bay Valley Christian Church? That's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. And we started talking about spiritual things. He said, well, you should come to my church sometime. I said, oh, that'd be wonderful. I said, you should come. And he said, I'll ask my girlfriend about coming to your church. And you never know. I mean, this is just a small thing, right? What is God going to do? How many people are wistfully, longingly looking to heaven, just pleading for someone to give them the invitation? Would that alleviate your fear to any degree? Well, at least a little bit, right? Now, what about the fear of not knowing enough? How many of you have that? That's honestly been one of your fears. Has anyone ever asked you, now, could you teach Sabbath school? Or could you give a Bible study? Or would you pray with this person? I mean, isn't prayer even intimidating? I'm just being honest from my perspective. What if I don't know the right words to say? What if they ask me to do something that I'm not familiar with? And the lack of knowledge keeps us bound in fear. But here's a precious promise that I found. This is what I read the first time I became, my church asked me to become a Bible worker for the church at the age of 16. Absolutely intimidating to me. I'd never given a Bible study, never done anything of that sort. They said, would you be a Bible worker, quit your job and become, I said, well, I, I don't know. And I came across this quote. And this has radically transformed my life because it doesn't keep us bound because of lack of knowledge. Notice what it says. It says, he who begins with a what? How many of you think you have a little knowledge? Even one bit of information. Do you know what Jesus has done in your life? Well, you have a little knowledge. You just turn in the Bible to a passage, you can just read in that. You have a little knowledge. And in a humble way, and tells what he knows, while seeking diligently for further knowledge, will find the whole heavenly treasure awaiting his demand. Now, isn't this incredible? As you share your little bit, God multiplies it. Now, do we see biblical scenarios of this? Remember that little lad who comes to Jesus with his lunch? And he says, look, I only have this small lunch. Can you do anything with it? And God says, yeah, I'll take that, and I'll multiply it to feed thousands. God does the same thing with our knowledge. As we bring the little bit that we have, God says, I can use that. And as you diligently keep studying... More and more and more is revealed to where your little knowledge has become a little more. Now notice how it continues. The more he seeks to impart light, the more light he will receive. The more one tries to explain the word of God to others with a love for souls, the plainer it becomes to himself. The more we use our knowledge and exercise our powers, the more knowledge and power we shall have. Now is this not incredible? I mean, as we share, God proportionately gives us more knowledge. And the more you share, the more knowledge that he gives. But Satan wants to flip it the other way. We think we don't know enough, so we don't want to share. And then we wonder why we still don't know enough. 
But what if we stepped down in faith? What if we were willing to put our foot in the Jordan, so to speak, and take that first step as God was calling us to do and say, Lord, I'm absolutely terrified, but I've seen the promise. I'm willing to take the step. And not because of some great knowledge that I have, but because of your promise, I'm going to share your word with someone. Do you think we would see miracles today? You know, you wonder why the book of Acts that we're studying in Sabbath school often looks so different than what we're experiencing today. Could it be because the people in the book of Acts were doing this? I mean, Peter, <laughs> the, the, one of the last things we hear Peter saying is, Lord, when, you come, when will you come into your kingdom? Acts chapter 1, you know, how, how is that all going to come? And Jesus just says, it's not for you to know times and seasons. Go pray in Jerusalem and then go, go do your work for me. So the prayer happens, and then the next thing we know about Peter, Acts chapter 2, he stands up and preaches, and 3,000 souls are converted. What if Peter would have said, Lord, you know I have it wrong. I don't even have it all figured out. I'm trying to get it together, but you know the, the lack of, that I have as a disciple. What would have happened? The New Testament church wouldn't have been born. But we see through faithful effort and trusting in God's ability, not our own, we can see great things happen for the Lord. Now, Here's the third point. We're going to move quickly. The reason, one reason why I believe I didn't engage myself in evangelism and why some might not as well is because I think it's someone else's responsibility. Have you ever noticed that in life? That it's easy to assume someone else will take care of something but then no one else takes care of it and it's just left there? It's easy to think, well... As a church member, no, I don't know enough, and, and I'm fearful they might reject me, and, and, and brother so-and-so talks a little better, or sister so-and-so just has such a winning personality. So maybe it's their responsibility, because they seem a lot more qualified in my perspective. Or maybe it's the elder's duty, because, I mean, he is the elder. Or, or maybe it's the pastor. I mean, doesn't he receive a salary for something? I mean, isn't he supposed to share his faith and do evangelism? Isn't that why we hired him? I want to share something with you of whose responsibility this is. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Now this is beautiful. Because the, re the reality of having it as our responsibility is not a negative thing, which we often see it as. The word responsibility is a harsh word. But when we realize that it's everyone's privilege to take part in sharing the grace of truth with others around us. It changes the way that we live our lives. Ephesians chapter 4, and this is one of those spiritual gifts section. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Notice what it says. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Why did he give them? Notice verse 4. For the equipping of the who? Now, who are the saints? The church members. Now, you say, how do you know that? Aren't the saints like the holy people up on the church sides? On the No. When Paul was writing his letters to the Ephesians, he said, to the saints which are at Ephesus. When he wrote it to Philippi, or the book of Philippians, to the saints which are at Philippi. Corinth, to the saints which are at Corinth. The saints are God's believing people, his church in that area. So when it says that the pastors and teachers were given for the equipping of the saints, that means it's for our good. 
And notice how it continues. What is he equipping them for? It says the equipping of the saints for the work of what? Ministry. Now that's interesting. God didn't hire pastors to work while a hundred people watched. But God hired pastors to work alongside of and coach and to train a hundred people so we have a hundred and one workers. Does that make sense? How many of you would go to your boss who's the manager and say, why don't you do every job I'm doing because aren't you paid to do that? Well, is a manager's job to come and... Is that the effective way of work? No, it's a teamwork, a cooperation together, not a condemning and moving and those types of things. I'm not trying to get weird here. But the reality is, is that God is calling pastors to coach church members and train us in evangelism. Now, isn't this awesome that pastors aren't the only ones who get the good job? Like all of us, I mean, I'm being 100% serious. Have any of you experienced some joy in witnessing? Ever? I mean, really, just knowing that, I, I can't tell you how many people's doors I've gone to. One lady stands out in particular, who when I met her, she started weeping and said, look, I was just praying this morning that if God cared for me, he would send someone to my door. And now you come here with the very books that I was praying, with the issues I was praying about, and I know without a doubt that God has sent you here. And she's just weeping. She signs up for Bible studies. She wants to get connected to the church. And you can't tell me that that was not an enjoyable experience. The problem is, is many of us are just afraid. And we only go to the first door where we get rejected or the first person who says no. But what if we continued and found the right fruit that God had for us? Notice this from Christian service. Let ministers teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, they must carry the burden that the Lord has laid upon who? So who has the Lord laid a burden upon? Us. Now you, re you realize pastors are church members, right? So this is not just, oh, it's your work. This is our work collectively. That he has laid the burden of leading souls into what? The truth. My friends, how many of you want to experience this? We've seen over the years that without a doubt there are sincere Christians, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, who are longing to know how to share their faith, but they don't know how. And that brings us to our, second po our fourth point, sorry. That the fourth reason why many Christians don't begin their Christian soul winning or witnessing experience is because they don't know where to start. Have any of you had a boss or ever worked with people who didn't give you direction, but they expect you to get the work done? Anyone had that experience before? I hope you don't have employers like that today. But I can say I've worked for people like that where, hey, show up at 8.30 and you're there at 8.30 and they're off doing something else till about 9.15 and then they come over and say, hey, why aren't you working? Well, I'm not exactly sure what to do. I mean, this is my first day here. Well, I want you to do such and such. Okay, I'll go do such and such. Well, how do I do that? Just a moment, I'll be right there. And you don't get the training necessary and it's nothing more than aggravation. The reality is, is in our Christian life, this is what many of us have experienced. How many of you, this is not a new understanding that as Christians, we have a responsibility of taking the gospel to the world? You understand that. This isn't, this isn't new information. But the danger is, and the problem is, is that many ministers have failed to do their job. Now, I'm not being critical of any specific pastor. I can only be critical of my own pastoral ministry and errors that I've made. But many times, we will encourage you to do something, but never give you the tools to do it. Now, in my opinion, there's nothing more frustrating. 
Hey, I want you to go win souls. Do you see that Jesus is laying this burden on you? Yeah, I feel the burden of winning souls. Do you want your neighbors to be in heaven? Yes, I want my neighbors to be in heaven. Well, go do it. Well, how? And the blessing is, is that God doesn't want us to be left there. Notice this quotation. Ministry of Healing, page 149. Many would be willing to work, and this is talking about evangelistic work. Many would be willing to work if they were taught how to what? Begin. They need to be instructed and encouraged. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Now, wouldn't this be incredible? Instead of not knowing how to live your Christian life, if Jesus is calling us to be with him and to go for him, how many of you think church should be the very place where we get that instruction? Why do we need to move aimlessly in our Christian life when God has raised up a church to bring us clarity in our mission? Now, lastly, I want to bring you to this point. And this is something that I would encourage you to check your own heart with. How many of you have ever felt, please don't raise your hands, because then I can say I'm honestly not picking on you. How many of you have ever felt before when you've felt the call of God to do something for Him, or you've heard an appeal to do something for God? Your first response is, Lord, I don't have time. I mean, just be honest. And how many of you really have bunches of free time in your schedule? The reality is, is working people work very hard. Retired people probably work twice as hard. You know, I mean, it's just the reality. Life doesn't slow down. I've never been retired, but that's just what I seem to hear. And so if we're busy all through life, how can we get the time to be able to spend the time, number one, with Jesus, and number two, to go for Jesus? Well, there was a young man that walked into my father-in-law's church. He's the head elder there. And he hadn't seen this young man for a while. And my father-in-law, Richard, greeted the young man and said, Hey, it's so good to see you. We've really missed you, and we're just so happy you're here. You know, we understand life's busy, but we're just happy you're back to worship with us. That's a good greeting, isn't it? Not condemning, fully understanding. And you know what the young man said? He said, I'm not too busy. I have time to do what I want to do. Now, let's just take a second. Could it be that this young man is just much more honest than the rest of us? Now, not to the fact that life is not busy, but could it be that we have time to do what we want to do, but sometimes we neglect to do what we need to do and ought to do? My friends, I think of the story of Mike Messer. I'll share this in closing. Mike Messer was the head elder at our church in Ithaca when we first got there. And I believe he still is to this day. And Mike Messer is a wonderful man. We had the opportunity of working with him. But something that I found out is that Mike hadn't really done much Bible study giving before. And I think he actually had never given a Bible study. And not that he was a bad person. He just hadn't done it before. And there's, there's no fault with that. But Mike had a desire to do something for the Lord just like many others do. And we said, Mike... Why don't we go give Bible studies to someone? Now, he was more than willing to come and to learn and to be a part of it and to invest the time. And so Mike and I went to go study with Chris the first time together. Now, during our study with Chris, Mike really opened up and started to share, and it was a beautiful experience. And after the first study, I told Mike, I said, Mike, I really don't think I have time to come back next week for when you guys scheduled. I actually have another appointment. Would you be okay with just taking the study? Oh, yeah, yeah, I see how simple it is. I can do it. Well, Mike goes back and continues to study with Chris. And within a few months, Chris is baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, you should have seen Mike's face that baptism Sabbath. 
I mean, he's a happy man, but he was even happier that Sabbath. When you see someone you've labored with and you've worked with and you know that you love them and you've led them into the truth by God's grace, there's a joy that comes. That didn't stop Mike, but it ignited him to continue. As Mike continued to have a burden for souls, he found a whole other family that the canvassers had met from our church. And those canvassers had connected us with these people, and that whole family started coming to church as a result of Mike's Bible studies. There have been other people, I could name people just in our local church, who have had the same experience. And my question is not whether or not, are you a good or bad Christian? That's not the object of this sermon. But my question is, how many of you want to fulfill the desires of Jesus? How many of you want to say, Lord, I want to do the very thing you called me to do. I want to be with you, and I want to go for you. But I can't do it in my own strength. Lord, if you promise, if you instruct me, if you give me wisdom, by your grace I will be faithful in carrying out that commission. Is that your desire this morning? Father in heaven, Lord, what a privilege it is that you would entrust us as sinful, erring humans with such a precious, valuable work of leading other souls into the truth. Father, how could you trust us with something so great? Lord, we bow in humility. We are terrified. We have no idea how you could do it. But Father, we pray that we would truly see fulfilled the promises of Jesus that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are just few. Lord, as we've just sung, and as you know our hearts, you see the desire of each heart to say, Here am I, Lord, send me. Lord, we ask that as you send us forth, you would help us to meet the success, to withstand the shortcomings and failures, and to have the determination to continue to persist with you. We surrender our lives to you this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.